You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Wednesday, April 20th, 2022. This is episode number 262. Today is our one-year anniversary. We have brought you the State of Cannabis News Hour every single weekday since we started a year ago today, even Thanksgiving Day and the day before Christmas. We are a dedicated team that is excited to bring the world the most important news with opinions and valuable audience participation. We started editing the show and making it a podcast in the beginning of January. We have thousands of downloads in many places in the world, including China, Singapore, Japan, the UK, Switzerland, Brazil, the United Arab Emirates, and many more. If you value what we're doing, please take a moment to support our work and make a donation today if you can. And if you can, make it monthly. We'd like to keep the lights on for another year at least. If you would like to come on stage today and tell us why you listen to the show, please send me a back channel message. Would love to hear from you. Okay, on with the show. I'm Susan Sorries, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's favorite grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 29,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about the origin of 420, Old Pals Grow Your Own 420 promotion, Pass Safe Banking is an Icebreaker, the ACLU sues state over cannabis classification, savvy black women redesigning what cannabis culture looks like, why it's illegal to smoke weed at the Denver 420 Festival, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's your headline today, Rico? Oh, yeah. So mine is showing a little black woman love today. Uh, for this special 420. Happy 420, everybody. It is Weed Christmas. Mine's coming from Lois Beckett at The Guardian. Inside these L.A. dispensaries, black women are redesigning what cannabis culture looks like. I know y'all are gearing up for an awesome day celebrating Weed Jesus' birthday and all, but I wanted to take a little time out to let y'all in on a little secret I got. I love black women. I love all all black women. I love all women, uh, really. But I'm sure y'all understand me on this one. I was born to a black woman, married to a black woman, and one day my daughter will grow up to be one, too. The truth is, over the last year in L.A., cannabis, it hasn't all been bad for the black community. We've actually had a few hard-fought wins. And in the spirit of 420, where I know a ton of y'all will be getting lifted like the other 364 days don't even exist. If you're in L.A., I want to direct y'all to a few black women-owned and run dispensaries highlighted in this Guardian piece to grab a few frosty nugs from. First is Willow. This one's opening today, so I haven't had a lot to report on yet, um, but I'll be 
checking in to see what the vibe is like per the article willows actually a brand uh opening a dispensary in beverly wood and modeling itself on the boutique experience of a diptyque candle store or a joe malone perfume store uh, with a distinctive la twist i have no idea what either of those are but the pictures of the shop are gorgeous and the fact that it's in beverly wood screams bougie as fuck and a place i'd feel very comfortable taking my wife or any other women i know and confident um they'd be pretty impressed and not in a stale cookie cutter hardware store slash skate shop mashup like a ton of the other uh, pot shops in town the dispensary looks like a tiny neon lit uh, cathedral with led lights that shift color and um they have uh, beautiful sound installations and terpene uh, uh, samples as well. Found, uh, founder Camille Roy Stotcher is a black and Mexican entrepreneur with a tech background, uh, but she'll be offering guests a luxury customer service mimicking Nordstrom's shoe department where she worked in high school and college. She said in the article, customers would ask for one pair of shoes and you had to show them four pairs. Uh, well, I can't wait to find out uh, what alternatives I'm offered once I inquire about their Top shelf latest Blue Dream variant, which is not Boof. Next on the list, Josephine and Billy's. Uh, this one's here in South Central. And for the gentrifiers, colonizers, and anyone who prefers to act like the government never nicknamed our neighborhoods after war zones, South LA. Uh, we covered this story uh, this year how Ebony McGee Anderson and my good friend Whitney Beatty opened up this speakeasy style homage to legendary jazz vocalists and greats. Josephine Baker and Billie Holiday. Jason Beck and I attend the grand opening, and the place is amazing. You walk through the unassuming apothecary interest, tell them Billie sent you, and they'll open a secret door into a gorgeous shop draped up and dripped out in beautiful hues of gold and dark blue throughout. These black women have been fighting for their spot to shine for the uh, for the last five years, and I've been alongside them every turn of the way. Um, throughout the uh, uh, Leading up to the pandemic, and it was awesome to see them finally get funded by Jay-Z's parent company um, at the end of last year. Third on the list, Gorilla RX Wellness, also here in South Central. Um, and actually, it's my go-to shop where I'll be checking in for their festivities early this afternoon. Founder Kika Keith comes from a strong family of activists and made a huge headlines last year when she and Ciawa's team um, sued the state for $50 million for unfair business practices through social equity. The lawsuit ended up Quietly dropped, and details are fuzzy on any settlement numbers, but Gorilla opened. Their incubator facilities on site will be also soon, and shit. I think that's all I'm allowed to say right now. Kika wanted to feel <laughs> wanted it to feel like a part grocery store, um, part roller skating rink, and they pulled it off pretty damn well. Bright oranges, yellows, blues, and greens are found throughout, and friendly team of bud tenders, security guards, and on-site staff are always energetic and ready to assist. It's got an open, inviting, community-centric interior aimed at appealing to a broad range of black customers, including elders, which is one of their focuses when designing the layout. And if you stop by today and grab a pack, you'll get a free wristband to attend their 420 wellness event day party at the Plant Chica venue about one mile north from 2 to 6 p.m. Finally, I wanted to give an honorable mention to uh, to one not on the Guardian list, 64th and Hope. 64 and Hope. Um, the first offering from the 4th Movement Collective has got two locations, one in Mid-City, one in Melrose District. It's black, queer, women-owned, and I've been to the one in Mid-City. Beautiful shop, uh, bright white and blue themes throughout, and one of the cleanest areas aesthetics I've seen in the game. Uh, I had the honor of meeting founder Asia Allen, one of the dopest, kindest, uh, most resilient human beings in the game, and she's always grinding at the shop, showing love to everybody in there. I highly recommend stopping by any of these beautiful black women-owned shops today and show a little 420 love. If you And if you can't make it today, anytime. You're out here in L.A. We got to support black women in the game who constantly gotten shitty deals since legalization conversation began. And let's make sure the ones who have made it or are in the process of making it get as much love and support possible from the community because they've earned it. This is a free goal to meet the dopest dad on the street for State of Cannabis News Hour. And I know I've let out, left out plenty. And I'd love to hear from any other black women own shops or products that need a little 420 love. What y'all got, team? Definitely want to shout out Reese Benton over at Posh Green up north. Um, I have not been to her shop either, but she was a judge two years at Emerald Cup and is the sole proprietor of her shop as well. And it totally, you know, the black women always do it 100% luxury. There's no discounts ever. Yes, sir. And this is nationwide, too. Uh, I'm on our staff, uh, Roz McCarthy. I know she has Black uh, Buddha cannabis brand as well. Any other Black women uh, own products or uh, dispensaries, please show them love. Uh, give them give them your support and um, show them that they belong in this industry. They, they deserve the head of the table, not just a seat. Mary and Maine in Maryland. Yes, folks, um, Wiseman. Um, if you're in Maryland, please visit the shop, Mary and Maine. 
If you're in Washington, Oklahoma, or California, Fruit Slabs is a black-owned brand. Fruit Slabs. And if you get a chance, uh, there's a black product in the market uh, called Dio's, which stands for Doing It For Ourselves, which is owned by a black uh, female from Oakland named Mahalik. Nice job, Rico. That was great. And I cannot wait to go to Whitney's store. Uh, so we're going to keep smoking the news. Next up is co-producer Jason Beck. His provocative spin keeps the show popping. He has proven to be one of the most resilient players in the weed game since starting his first store in San Francisco. Rated by the DEA multiple times and surviving the drama of the past few decades, he is legitimately the longest continuous cannabis retailer in the United States. Jason, give us a history lesson today on 420. Oh, yeah. Happy 420, everyone. Thank you so much, Susan. Today, my story is about the origins of 420. I know there's many myths, legends, and urban myths around 420. My favorite one personally being that 420 was a code for law enforcement for busting cannabis smokers, similar like a 187 to a homicide or a 211 for a burglary robbery. But now let's get back into the stony stuff. Looking back, at the absolutely unexpected and totally wild origins of 420. And I encourage anybody to check out this article. I normally don't say that, but this article is extremely long, goes into a lot of depth um, and asks a lot of different perspectives of um, of the originators of 420. So I encourage anyone that has some time today to check this out. Now, here's the question. What do Point Ray's Lighthouse, a French chemist, Louis Pastier, and the Grateful Dead all in, all have in common? Well, I'll tell you. Well, they're all part of the original story of how 420 methodically worked its way from a street code to a mainstream weed lingo. In 1971, five San Rafael High School students were were tired on of, of Friday night football games and searching for parties. The five students called themselves the Waldos, referencing the wall they would sit at at their school. The wall located at the main courtyard in front of the cafeteria was a perfect spot for the Waldos to work on impressions of their fellow classmates and teachers. They began occupying their time with adventures called Safares after Steve Capper took them uh, to what is now uh, Silicon Valley in search of a holographic city that he read about in Rolling Stone. Safaris were a way for the Waldos to challenge each other to come up with something out of the box to do. Most took place in the Bay Area, but sometimes they traveled further afield in California. There were two rules to the to the Safaris. They had to go somewhere new, and they had to be stoned to do them. That's right. You got to get high. One day, the Waldos met at 4.20 p.m. for a safari and smoked all the Panama Red and Acapulco Gold they had in their stash. Marijuana strains popular at the time for their potency and energizing qualities they could get their hands on. The mission of this particular safari was to find an, an abandoned patch of weed. The meeting time stuck, as did the weed choice of their constant soundtrack of new riders of the Purple Sage, Grateful Dead, and Santana. Eventually, 420 became a secret code for the Waldos wherever they wanted to smoke. The Waldos are Capper, Dave Reddix, Jeffrey Knoll, Larry Schwartz, and Mark Gravich. They have thoughtfully determined the term's origins with postmarks, letters, high school newspaper clippings, and U.S. military records to corroborate their first 4.20 p.m. safari in 2002. Capra and Noel spoke to the Times about their role in coining the, the famous weed slang, but wouldn't reveal their names in print due to stigma surrounding cannabis back then. 20 years and now the Waldos are, are synonymous, no more, in, no more in the clouds, and the cannabis legalization sweeps the country on a state level. Capper and Reddix, who have uh, been about discussing 420 in recent years, spoke by phone to explain what it's like to the term of a life of their own views in the future of weed. And this is how this all started. In the Bay Area, stoners going out to find a fucking patch of weed. Just like you would if you were fucking following a rainbow, looking for a leprechaun, searching for a pot of cold. And here's your history lesson on 420, everyone. Enjoy your day. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Yeah, Jason, it's so crazy that it went from code to now we've got senators wanting to release their bills on that day. So 
Come a long way, baby. We also have had bills, especially here in California. We had SB 420, which was Senate Bill 420. Right. Um, and I'm sure we will see more coming, uh, coming forward on the federal side. Great story, Jason. Thank you. Oh, thanks for the history lesson, uh, Jason. Um, 420 special to all of us. I just hope that, um, you know, with this whole Chuck Schumer and Cory Booker um, bullshit that we've been um, uh, uh, circling, that People just don't take it for granted and don't think it's a joke. Uh, cannabis is medicine. We've got a long history, great people in, uh, in the business, and we just got to move shit forward, man. Whether you're on the right or left or in the middle somewhere, uh, we just got to move the shit forward and make sure people are taken care of. Yeah, 100. And I'm happy that we as an industry, even previous to legalization, were celebrating this. The data shows uptick in sales year over year. And, you know, kind of like the fake Hallmark holidays, ours is rooted in culture. Or unlike, I should say, the fake Hallmark holidays, like we birthed this even before any adult use or quote unquote legalization. And for it to persist and be such a cultural pillar is is an amazing testament to the will of the people wanting cannabis. Like we didn't need somebody or the government to make this happen. We made this happen. What are you doing today, Guy, to celebrate? Um, well, I'm with my family. Um, I'm going to Hazy LA's party. I'm probably going to go to glass houses. Um, I'm going to visit some dispensaries to support uh, the sales team and whatnot, a little bit of business, visit my distribution facility here in LA because I just came down because I'm not in Humboldt. Um, yeah, and just like reflecting on how awesome it is. I, I, I wish we had gotten 420-2020 during the pandemic. I was excited to launch a dispensary last year. So I've just been thinking about yeah, the progression of 420 over the years and how important it's been to me even before. And I know where somebody's about to talk about what happened in Denver, and I, I can't wait for that article because I remember being very disappointed how the MED has been treating folks ever since legalization in Colorado. But yeah, just happy to celebrate. And you know, if anybody knows of anything, let me know because I'm going to be out and about, as Rico said, lit like there's no other days of the year. And, you know, my, my favorite part of this story is that its origin was in the Bay Area. And just another quick history lesson, uh, medical cannabis was first passed in California back in 1996. And uh, Dan Lundgren was the attorney general at that time. And he fully stated that if you wanted to get rid of medical cannabis, uh, you would have to do it within San Francisco because that was the heart of medical cannabis. And so the fact that uh, cannabis legalization, that movement started in San Francisco in the Bay Area and the 420 movement as well also started in the Bay Area just really pays an amazing homage to 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 the culture. And if you if you don't know the history of cannabis, uh, you you need to get up to speed. Listen to the podcast, Great Moments in Weed History. And you will learn a lot and be entertained. Yeah, they just dropped one uh, today. Uh, Beanstalk just sent it to me. Yeah, the one that they did live. And his rise. Again, you guys. Yeah, remember, like, the magic of the plant is not just the cannabis we're smoking. The whole hemp plant was prohibited. We need to ask why. And more importantly, we need to get her back into production across all sectors, not just what we're smoking. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's do it. Up next is a pot-loving PhD and a true-to-life alternative activist. She's also a champion. Champion of what? Common sense cannabis policy. And somehow she stays optimistic in the middle of all this cannabis chaos. Coming to the stage, Medica Mahajan. What you got for us today? Happy 420. Happy 420, Rico. Happy 420, team, audience. So I'm talking about a couple of festivals today. And uh, starting with San Francisco, as Chris Eggers reported yesterday, for the first time, on-site cannabis sales will be legally allowed at San Francisco's famous Hippie Hill 420 event, which is an annual tradition at Golden Gate Park. And if you want to, you can join the expected crowd of 20,000 people from noon to 5. And if you're there around 4 p.m., you might even catch a glimpse of Mike Tyson doing some sort of chat room launch. And also remember, uh, if you're if you're attending in San Francisco, that the Office of Cannabis and the mayor have hinted slash warned that attendees and organizers need to be on their best behavior or the event will be modified in future years. Mayor Breed brought up the Castro Halloween event, which was pretty much shut down after a shooting in 2006. So the San Francisco event is limited to 20 uh, adults 21 years and older, and they're going to be checking IDs at the entrance. It'll be completely enclosed by a fence. Consumption will be allowed in designated areas, but no dabbing. So have fun if you're going to San Francisco. And meanwhile, in Denver, over 50,000 people are expected to attend the Mile High 420 Festival at Civic Center Park. 
It's an all ages free event and the gates open at noon. The festival ends at 8 p.m. Bags are permitted and any bags must come in that must come in for medical purposes have to be thoroughly searched. Unfortunately, uh, there won't be cannabis sales or smoking at the Denver event and drugs and paraphernalia are not allowed. Festival organizers have said that smoking is strictly prohibited and enforced and under Colorado state law, cannabis consumption is not allowed where it can be observed by the public or where the public has unrestricted access. But guess what is allowed? Alcohol. Uh, Sales and consumption of booze will occur at seven large beer gardens in the Denver 420 Festival. And there will be plenty of munchies. Over a dozen food trucks will be present. Uh, So Denver PD will have some officers in the area to make sure no one smokes weed at the Weed Festival. And if they catch you, fines, uh, you can get a fine or you can get possible jail or prison sentence, depending on the type of offense. So the event organizers also remind attendees that it's illegal to possess more than one ounce of flour. To my friends and family in Colorado, I guess today's a good day to break out the edibles. Don't carry weed in your bag and don't get caught smoking pot at the cannabis festival. This is Menika Mahajan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. All right, two things on this, Menica. If San Francisco thinks it even has any chance of stopping people from smoking weed at a cannabis festival, they got to be out of their fucking minds. Okay? Uh, Jason, they no, can't that's even Denver. San Francisco's allowing consumption. They are allowing consumption. Yeah, sorry. The first one was San yeah. Francisco, and then I contrasted that against Denver. Uh, got it. Okay. Well, in, in all fairness, I'm, I'm very in favor of these regulators taking this action in Colorado and especially in Denver because no one should be subject to having to smoke Denver or Colorado weed. Oh, my God. <laughs> Whatever, Jason. Look, let me, you guys, this is so egregious. This is why I'm not operating in Colorado. The second year in after adult use, have if any of you have been to the Denver 420 Festival pre-legalization, it was very much like what we used to do out in the desert, kind of a free-for-all. The cops just dealt with kids smoking because that's what you do, or adults, people smoking, I should say. I'm sorry. And the reality is, after legalization, the MED tripled down on trying to prevent us from bringing stuff just to even have contests, just to enter. You couldn't even go and buy your own products to submit to the festival. You couldn't go to the festival and smoke. And the fact that this still persists years after we've dropped millions, if not billions, into their coffers and built schools is so egregious. I don't say I don't think we should boycott the festival. But honestly, if this persists next year, perhaps we need to get a small band together and get a real smoke in because this has to stop. This is so upsetting. It's like, how? Really? We're in 2022. This is supposedly one of the more mature markets in the state. And this is how they're behaving. Not observable to the public. What are we pornography now? Anyway, shame, shame, shame on the MED. We know you're behind it. That's why cops should never benefit from cannabis ever. Gay, you're totally right with this, with with what they're doing in Denver. The reality is, I remember uh, years before legalization in Colorado, they used to have Denver smokeouts at City Hall, and people would go all the time at 420 to the steps of City Hall in Denver and smoke out. And so why they're not allowing it now is just ridiculous. Nick, did you want to weigh in? We got Nick up from the audience. Yeah, I just wanted to add a little bit on the San Francisco event. So they're going to be fencing off the entire venue and searching everyone's bags, they are very clear that you're not allowed to bring your own weed to the event. You have to buy the legal weed being sold at... Boo! Boo! (laughs) Boo, boo, boo! Yo, this is... You're supposed to say put an F on it, Susan. Yeah, like, X on it. You know, real talk, like me and Jason were saying yesterday, there's going to be a fucking melee. People are going to get pissed off getting their fucking shit searched. This is this is fucking California. I don't go nowhere, get my bag searched, and get weed taken yeah, from exactly. it. Exactly. People are going to yeah, stick crazy. that shit in their socks, stick it wherever they got to stick it, but they're going to get uh, that shit in there. Come Shout on. Shout out to suppositories. Literally. That, does, that have a, does that have anything to do with the regulations, or are they just being greedy bastards? They want that tax revenue, girl. Yes, sir. They want that Follow tax the money, revenue. Susan. They're probably being greedy. But look, in fairness, you guys, if we want to tax and regulate like alcohol, if you were going to a restaurant or a venue where they served alcohol beverages and they said, don't bring your own beverages, I, I, I'm going to side like it's a hard one. But I understand why the organizers, the brands and the folks who spent money to organize it might want to have folks drop money instead of just bringing their own weed to sit down. I, I'm, I, I'm just going to say that. 
Well, there but could be like a two joint minimum or something, like they do at comedy shows. Yeah, Home grows are legal, though, so now you're telling people they can't bring product that they grew that they might want to share. They they might exactly. Yeah. that's ridiculous. Hey, 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 I, I agree with you uh, on that restaurant uh, reference there, um, but I would also like to say. Um, back when I go, used to go to bougie-ass restaurants, I won't say I do it now because I don't really go out that much. I would always bring my own shit, whether it's a 40, whether it's a, a, a pint in my, in my jeans, whatever. Fuck paying $100 for like three drinks. I'm bringing my own. I'd do the same thing in San Francisco as I was, if I was on Hippie Hill, just saying. Yeah, I remember uh, some of the events we had early on in San Francisco. We had May Day, J Day, and we would set up right in Civic Center Plaza and sell weed as far as being a dispensary. And yet, you're always going to get the fucking the hippies that come down selling their uh, their bird seed balls and all the other shit, just randomly walking around selling everything. So if they think they're going to stop this shit, they're definitely not. It's been going on for fucking decades. We ain't new to this. Right. What's a birdseed ball, Jason? You know, the birdseed balls. All, all the hippies the know what birdseed balls is. This is not not like a new thing. It sounds like something that uh, that uh, Tucker Carlson likes to tan. I think they call them goo balls, but because they have lots of nuts in them and shit, I call them birdseed balls because that's what they look like. The blue balls? Not blue balls, Rico. Come on, bro. Goo balls, bro. Goo. Okay, we need to move on, but I just wanted As to give... somebody who used to uh, make ganja goo balls for 420 in the park in San Francisco... Yes, you can make racks off of selling ganja goo balls. Yeah, I call them I call them bird seeds, Stephen. But I know what you call them, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that was fantastic! Thank you guys for all your comments on that. Uh, coming up next to the stage, this feisty redhead conservative proudly claims her Mayflower roots and never backs down when challenged by pot loving libs across the aisle. The founder of Panoptic Strategies and our very own Washington Insider coming up to the stage next is Gretchen Gailey. What you got for us this morning, girl? Uh, good afternoon and happy 420 to everyone out there coming from Washington where nobody cares about cannabis except for on 420. Uh, my headline today is coming from Marijuana Moment. Uh, Congressman urges Senate to pass marijuana banking bill as icebreaker to broader reform. Uh, the sponsor of a bipartisan bill to protect banks that work with state legal marijuana businesses sent a letter to Senate leadership yesterday imploring the chamber to act on the reform on the one-year anniversary of the House's latest passage of the measure in standalone form. Uh, Representative Ed Perlmutter wrote that not only is cannabis banking reform an urgent public safety necessity, but passing his Safe Banking Act could also serve as a legislative icebreaker for the type of broader reform that Senate leaders have been working on. The letter was addressed to the sponsors of a wide-ranging marijuana legalization bill, uh, that's being finalized by Senators uh, Schumer, Wyden, and Cory Booker, as well as Banking Committee Chairman Sherrod Brown. The Congressman's Safe Banking Act has passed the House in some form six times um, in one various form or another, and he's losing patience with the Senate as he continues to push for the reform measures enactment before he retires from Congress at the end of this session. Part of the reason for inaction in the Senate under Democratic control is that Schumer and certain colleagues have insisted that comprehensive legalization that directly addresses social equity should pass first. But while the leader previously said that his bill to accomplish that would be introduced this month, that timeline has recently been pushed back. Uh, Perlmutter said, we all agree on the need to pass comprehensive le legislation to reform our outdated, dangerous, and inequitable federal cannabis laws. As you know, cannabis reform legislation is a difficult task. The Safe Banking Act solves one piece of the puzzle. There will continue to need to be to make reforms when it comes to social equity, decriminalization, expungement taxes, research, veterans, and much more. The Safe Banking Act is an immediate solution to cash off on cash off our streets and ensure state legal legitimate businesses can operate like any other type of business, particularly small and minority-owned cannabis businesses who have been disproportionately impacted by the lack of banking services. The congressman also referenced the spike in crime targeting state legal marijuana businesses, which largely operate on a cash-only basis because financial institutions are generally weary on banking companies that deal with federally prohibited substance. He said legalizing and decriminalizing cannabis is the most expedient way to deal with the myriad of issues which have developed due to the misalignment in state and federal cannabis laws. However, as the end of the 117th Congress is quickly approaching, we cannot let the political realities of passing comprehensive cannabis reform through the Senate prevent progress from our communities now. 
Uh, Perlmutter said that the Senate leadership should pass the Safe Banking Act expediently, either through a large-scale manufacturing bill where its language is attached or as standalone legislation where it also is. Um, and my favorite thing that he wrote in this letter to them is, we share the same goals to fully reform federal cannabis laws. We cannot let our fight for comprehensive cannabis reform stall progress this year. This would be the detriment of thousands of state legal businesses, their employees, and the safety of our communities. As you work through the summer to finalize comprehensive cannabis legislation, I ask you and your colleagues to take the first step in reforming our cannabis laws and pass the Safe Banking Act in the American Competes Act or as a standalone bill as soon as possible. Uh, Ed Perlmutter has taken the same stance that Rico Lamy took at the beginning of uh, our show today. I don't care what you got to do. Just come together, get some fucking shit done. This is bullshit. We have legislation that can pass, that can help the cannabis community, um, and people need to get out of the way of their own egos and actually start doing something for, for cannabis. This is Gretchen for State of Cannabis News Hour. Gretchen, I really, really appreciate that and everything, but um, fuck safe banking. Pass safe banking already. Icebreaker? Oh, my God. Okay, uh, I'd like to poll our audience right now. Raise your hand if you think the first thing that we should do is pass safe banking. Raise your hand. It's not about if you think it should be the first thing we do. It's the first thing that's realistically to get done. Raise your hands. I think I think the real question to the audience, Susan, should be, do you think safe banking would help you? There we go. No. No, 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 no leading bullshit. That's not question. a leading no. question. How about anybody who thinks safe banking should be passed before any type of retribution for the war on You're drugs? You're not going to yeah. get retribution, Rico. Rico. Rico, if you take a look at some recent polls of cannabis businesses – People say the number one thing on their mind is the financial and the banking side. I'm sorry it is, but that's what people are looking for and what, help for and, right and, now. And, and, we're, and, and, and where, where are these only, people coming oh, from? And what do these people look like? Do they look like the rest only of, the 10% of the audience, yeah, Only 10% of the audience. Only 10% of the audience raised their hands. Pass safe banking. The, the, the people that are pushing this shit forward, Gretchen, do they look like anybody who built this industry? Answer that. What, what is that supposed to mean, Rico? I mean, there are plenty you know of exactly minority and small businesses that are not, you know, the MSOs of the world who need help. The MSOs don't need safe banking. Exactly right. So to keep pretending that... Then why are they trying to pass it? Why are they they're they're it? actually they're not the trying, trying to pass it, Rico. It's other people. Well, they're no, not. they're not. No, no. They, they're not the ones no, that descended they, they, they upon want, uh, Washington last, last no, month that Gretchen they're, uh, they're reported on. They're trying to pass initiatives that, that ban home grow and other different protectionist measures. All the big banks, all the big banks are backing. Uh, you got to have the, the big, big banks, banks involved, Rico. You got to have the banks involved in order to have safe banking. The no, big boys, the big boys <laughs> don't get me started on that Rico, shit. Rico, let me answer your question. The reason that the big boys are here and av- they do advocate for safe banking is not just for safe banking, but they're advocating to fucking get the conversation started anywhere. They understand that you have to do something the, to get the conversation. The conversation, the conversation was already started, and they, and they moved the go- goalposts. Bullshit! This Congress is not going anywhere on a large-scale, comprehensive bill. One hundred percent. Anyone who knows anything about Washington knows it's not happening. So we got to start moving incrementally to get where we need to be. It's not going to happen in one fell swoop. I hate to say that, but it's not. You need smaller bills to get shit through. It's good to know, you know, who's driving these bills, though. And so I think Rico's point is very valid. Isn't the American Bankers Association one of the biggest lobbyists for the safe banking? Yes, yes, they are. And they're one of our strongest allies in passing safe banking. And the reality is we wouldn't even have safe banking if they weren't able to help us in this endeavor. What's in it for them? I mean, that's the question, right? What do you mean what's in it for them? They want they want to open up safe banking. They want to have more clients. That, that, that just makes more sense. They want to be able to give out more loans so they can make more money. It's in their best interest to bring this industry out of the shadows and into the banking system. Yeah, I think there's more to that story. Um, but yes. Haters going to hate because that's there's what not, haters do. There's not more to that story. What's wrong with them wanting to make money, Menica? That's how this uh, capitalist world works. Cannabis businesses want to make more money. The bankers want to make more money. Let's all make Not to mention money. cannabis so businesses bad. want funding at reasonable rates without predatory lenders. They can provide banking services just like no, they cannot. provide No, they cannot, services. Menica. No, they cannot. Okay, well, we're going to relight the room now. That was really fun. 
You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers and not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and the speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or of any authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationship. The sponsorships of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any speaker. Viewer discretion advised. Did you know that the State of Cannabis News Hour's reach goes far beyond the greater continental U.S.? It's true. We've got worldwide live audience members and active downloads as far away as the United Arab Emirates, Japan, even China. China. I love them. China. 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 I have to have my China. 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 But also many other places. By becoming a sponsor, you can get your company the global marketing exposure you won't find anywhere else while supporting nonprofit cannabis news. Find out how you can support the State of Cannabis News Hour at www.justsaycare.org. Tell them Rico sent you. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's do it. Our next correspondent is an attorney at law focused on bridging the gap between cannabis, entertainment, and psychedelics. Her IG game is super lit, and her podcast and blog asks us all the age-old question only the most civilized folks of all time have asked each other at 4.20 p.m. Shall we talk? Shalina Panu, what you got for us today? Thank you so much, Rico. Good morning, everyone. Happy 4.20. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is Cannabis Shops Oversaturate Toronto Streets. Canada, Canada legalized cannabis in 2018, make it, making it the second country in the world to do so after Uruguay. However, as stated by the New York Times, initially there was a supply shortage of legal cannabis. As such, Toronto was allowed to only open five cannabis shops. However, once the pandemic hit, the government not only allowed these shops to remain open, they also gave out more licenses. The only restriction that they had on shops was that they'd be roughly 500, 500 feet or 150 meters away from one another. During the lockdowns, cannabis shops were given an emergency order by the government to continue operating. At the time the pandemic hit in March 2020, only 12 cannabis stores existed. Fast forward two years, there are now 430 open with another 88 waiting approval. In turn, this has created excessive amounts of competition, particularly those located in downtown on Queen Street West, which is known as the heart of street fashion, art, and music. The street is covered with restaurants, jazz halls, instrument shops, and retail stores. Cannabis shops have now overtaken the street with 13 along the less-than-mile stretch. Reasons for this sudden increase include the government allowing cannabis shops to remain open during lockdowns, loosening of cannabis shop licensing restrictions, and a tremendous spike in available storefront places. In just the last three years since stores have opened, Canada's economy was boosted by legal cannabis sales, estimating $10.6 billion, with consumption rates only increasing. However, not all cannabis shops are thriving, as most are struggling to keep their doors open due to excessive amount, due to the excessive competition. Even stores like the Honey Pot, which was the first legal cannabis store to open in Toronto in April 2019, was averaging 20000 a day, but now they only serve one-tenth of their record. Aside from stiff competition, what seems to be causing difficulties is the store's inability to differentiate their products as every single legal store must get their supply from the government wholesaler. What this means is that they all sell the same products in the same sealed plain packages. The only way they can try to be creative is how they design their shops, and even then the government has to place restrictions. Most cannabis shop owners are discouraged at this competition, while others view it as an opportunity to make more money off of other cannabis items such as pipes, grinders, rolling trains, and more. What are your thoughts on the oversaturation of cannabis shops in Toronto? My name is Shlena, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I think this is... Um it's a crazy development over the last few years, over the last uh, two plus years since the last time I was at Toronto um, when I was speaking at the uh, the Canadian Cannabis Awards. So um, I just got to go up there and see this oversaturation, see what we can get. I know Jason said there's nothing but boof up there, but you know we'll, we'll, we have to see, eh? Tons of boofery, bro. It's all indoor. It must be delicious, Jason. It's all indoor. Where, Chris? Uh, it's all fucking boof, bro. All boof. That's like bad indoor. It's like the outdoor weed of indoor weed. Oh my god! You're just chasing, <laughs> so it's like a bio. Like, it's like a biodome. You're like one of those dogs chasing his tail around in circles, man. That's good. Never, <laughs> never, weed. never. The only thing I chase is this money, and I get it. More money, more money. And, and anybody else want to talk about the Toronto uh, weed and uh, saturation? Is Toronto turning into uh, downtown L.A. circa 2017? 
Very possible. Very, very, very possible. All right. Well, if no one else has anything to say on that, coming up next to the to the stage, he's a communication strategist and publisher of the American Cannabis Report. Citizens, citizens from his home planet call him Clark Kent. While flying high on Earth, he's known to the public as Superman, but we all know his secret identity is Christopher Smith. What you got for this morning, bro? Good morning, Jason. Good morning, Susan Enrico. My story today is a mashup of a few articles from the Fresh Toast. Uh, for a long time, I've been interested in seniors using cannabis. I think they should, not just as a market for cannabis products, but because the conditions that many older adults describe as most troublesome as they get older are right in the wheelhouse of God's favorite plant. I've also mentioned several times that my 85-year-old mother still can't even say the word and ask me if I'm still working in that industry. And hidden in her statement, afraid even to to say the word out loud is one of the biggest problems with getting older adults to come over to the good stuff. So this story or a series of stories caught my eye. According to a survey reported by U.S. News and World Report, which was conducted on 1,250 Medicaid, Medicare recipients, one in five Medicare patients use medical cannabis. Respondents use it to treat a variety of physical and mental health conditions, including 32% for anxiety, 31% for chronic pain, and about 25% said they use it for depression, glaucoma, and this, this was interesting, I thought symptoms associated with HIV AIDS, including uh, nausea, appetite loss, and pain. About two-thirds uh, thought that cannabis should be covered by Medicare, which was more or less true across all political parties, but one-third worried that adding to Medicare would increase its cost. Uh, so that particular story was not terribly insightful, which is why I started following the links in the article. And the first one is, seniors in pain want to try cannabis, but this is preventing them. So we know that about 30% of Americans, or 110 million, suffered from, suffer from chronic pain. This article points out that by age 65, the figure is about 40%, and by age 80, 75% of people will suffer from chronic pain. And what makes it worse is that the alternatives, acetaminophen, aproxen, ibuprofen, have intense after effects on the body organs of senior citizens. Many who can withstand opioids have managed with it, but opioids are not sufficient enough to resolve the problem and not to mention the high risk of addiction involved. Well, one of the constants across the list of all qualifying conditions, all states, is chronic pain. And you'd think that this is the connection, this connection between chronic pain and relief from God's favorite plant would be automatic, right? Well, no, of course not. The reason is the stigma. Just like my dear old ma in 2019 survey of older adults, 30% didn't even answer the question about whether they'd used cannabis, and it was an anonymous survey. That's how afraid they are about the demon weed and all that. And so the last link I, follow, link I followed offered a ray of hope. Okay, boomer, marijuana use on the rise among older adults. One item that jumped out at me was a mention of HRQL, or health-related quality of life. And I think this may be something we can build on as we help our parents age as they get older. A study published in 2020 found that cannabis users over 60 wrote, reported a strong positive association connecting how often patients use cannabis and self-reporting upgrades in pain management, healthcare utilization, and uh, health-related quality of life. So I think I can sell this one at our next family dinner. Wish me luck, and I'm done speaking. Can I um, can I get an invite to that next family dinner, Christopher? Please, I want to see what Kryptonians eat. <laughs> Come on over, bring bring your own weed. <laughs> I'll bring my own weed. That way, you guys will actually have some good weed. Oh, thank goodness! Boomers are getting a lot of hate. Really, it's because that um, uh, that M is easily traded out for an F. Ooh, it's probably just because the 80s were so awesome and all the millennials and Gen Zers are all pissed off because they got stuck in this fucked up time zone. Yeah, but you know, the, the, the main thing, in the, Chris, is the the notion of cannabis shame and how real it is. It's like definitely amongst the older folks, but everyone suffers from a little bit of like, hey, this is still kind of taboo. And we need to I, I, I rack my brain trying to figure out how can we like really step back from that? Because we don't think the same thing about alcohol. I know like when you go to the doctor and they're like, oh, how many drinks do you have? I'm like a lot more than two a week. But like in cannabis, we would not answer that question. And like even now, like when somebody asks about your cannabis use, you're like, why are you asking? And I don't know how we get past that. But that is a real thing that's inhibiting the, inhibiting the data. So the data is skewed and lost in a cloud of smoke, Guy? 
hundred <laughs> well, percent. Well, yeah, Jesus, and it's just like you said, Guy, one of the things that these articles point out is that these people are, they won't even answer on an anonymous thing, uh, anonymous questionnaire. So they're certainly not talking to their doctors about it. So, you know, it's all in the underground and the stigma is really uh, forcing bad health care decisions and, and other things. Maybe it's because they're still under the stigma from the 80s and they think that they're getting asked by the cops even though they're posing as a doctor. But we have seen more parents admit that their children uh, got into their edibles because it's not so illegal. And so those numbers seem like they're really going up. But I, I think it's just people are feeling more free to say what really happened. I think it's more just this generation is more apt to stitch on themselves than previous generations. There's some hate for the millennials here. Hate, hate, hate. Jason's a millennial. They always snitch on themselves. That's all they do. You're talking about Gen Z, man. The, the millennials, we don't, we don't do that. Like, you're a no, I'm not. No, I'm not. He's ten, I'm, I'm, he's well, you're, you're, I'm, I'm 78. Ten, ten, 78. I'm Generation ten, X. Okay. Generation ten, X. Okay. Proud of. Oh, you're the forgot. You're the forgotten generation. That's right. That's right. Because we're so fucking you high. Bald, you no, because you guys tenor? blew it for everybody else after you. Fucking 80s. You Reagan fucking assholes. 80s crushed, bro. Fuck Reagan. Eighties <laughs> were the best. Oh, let's oh keep, my goodness. We let's, have Rick Flair. let's keep smoking the news. That is the truth. Our we next correspondent, Rick, Rick Springfield. <laughs> our next correspondent doesn't need to hang out in the metaverse all damn day to feel real time four twenty vibes. And why is that? Because he's the CEO of the delicious vegan edible brand Fruit Slabs and a cannabis intellectual property attorney with a beard for fucking days. Coming out straight out of Long Beach, California, Brandon Dorsky. Thanks for having me today. Happy 420, everybody. My headline is it's Jack in the Box is making a limited edition Pineapple Express shake for 420. Jack in the Box is joining the weed-themed marketing party that is 420 Promotions with their Pineapple Express Shake. There's no tie-in with the film, Seth Rogen, or his weed brand, Houseplant. Just an on-the-nose use of the famous weed strain, coupled with a $4.20 price point. All Jack in the Box shakes will actually be $4.20 today. But order the Pineapple Express Shake and the fast food chain will plant a tree for every Pineapple Express Shake sold on the can of holiday. The article also heralded other free or cheap food options, although most of these other promotions are not 420 friendly. John's is currently offering a free 8-inch sandwich with your first order from their Halo Burger is offering a free QP Burger after your first loyalty visit to their chain. Jamba is offering a free functional boost with every smoothie order made through their app. And GoPuff, a new delivery service app, is offering $10 off your first two orders with code GET20. And last, but certainly the headiest, from 9 a.m. to noon today, you can get a free Yeasty Boys signature sandwich with the purchase of a Kiva and Yeasty Boys Everything Bagel Seasoning Munchies Bar if you are purchasing at Wonder Brett, Mota, or Sweet Flower located in downtown Los Angeles or Westwood. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis. Enjoy your munchies, y'all. Brandon, do we know what a milkshake normally costs at Jack in the Box? Can't say that I do. I'm, the not a big, I'm not a big Jack in the Box eater. I'm just saying $4.20 doesn't sound like a special. It sounds like a Joe Biden inflation increase. A milkshake sounds like a, a, a free trip to the fucking bathroom in like five minutes. Yeah, you guys, come on. Sounds like. like for a major outlet like this to be throwing it down for 420, I don't eat Jack in the Box. I remember, I'm old enough to remember they had some scare where their burgers were making people sick. And I was just like, I don't even know how they maintain their franchise. But after hearing this, I might pop in for a shake. And yeah, it is overpriced, but it's overpriced for the culture. Come on, man. It's like they're trying. Thank you, Guy. Speaking of popover, their their uh, jalapeno poppers are delicious, and their tacos with the unknown thing is that the meat. Taco, is the tacos are know, vegan, Susan. Good. They are vegan tacos. They're good. They're delicious. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of Jack in the Box, but I do have to give them some love. They have been supporting the 420 community for a long time, and uh, they even have their late night munchies menu, which is specifically geared to those who are um, microwave cuisine specialists i think it's great that they, we're seeing this pop up in all these mainstream brands i think it's fantastic melted cheese on everything guaranteed to make you get up in the middle of the night and head to the bathroom oh no 
I know I know a many of nights when I was out in the streets trapping Jack in the Box was one of the only places open and so I've had a many of stony nights with Jack in the Box. Shout out to their butter burgers. They just put like a a, a half stick of butter on a, a cheeseburger and call it a day. <laughs> hey, how come you haven't seen the the Kali song yet, Rico? Um, cuz I'm not trying to bring any boys to my yard. <laughs> what does that mean? You know exactly what that means. Know. Yeah, you know exactly it, what that means. It, it, it yeah. means moving Nanograms along. doesn't know. It, no, it I means don't. Move it along. <laughs> okay. All right. Coming up next to the stage, we have Guy Record. He is the OG veteran and dope dad, known and respected by peers as a steadfast defender of the culture. Always first to stand up for the rights of legacy operators. The co-founder and CEO of Papa Barkley is coming up next to the stage. Take a seat, y'all, because it's time to listen to the gospel of Guy Record. What do you got for this morning, Guy? Thank you, Rico. Good morning, Susan. Good morning, Jason. Happy 420, everyone. Super excited. <laughs> I'm really excited about today. It's It's been... Yeah, favorite day of the year. So my article is coming out of the Reno Business Weekly, and you know, always good to see people pushing back. Nevada's cannabis industry has contributed 508 million in tax revenue to the state, a substantial piece of the 15% whole tax cannabis paid by cultivators goes to local governments, while the remainder is deposited in the state's distributive school fund account. According to Marijuana Policy Project, a group that advocates for legalizing cannabis. 10% of cannabis retail tax has added hundreds of millions to the state's rainy day fund. However, at the state, at the at the constitutional level, it is still schedule one. So in Nevada, where they have legal cannabis, it is still a schedule one drug as far as their state policy goes, which is where this uh, article is talking about them, the, this organization suing the state because there's a conflict there. Even though they're collecting tax dollars, they are still prosecuting people because cannabis is still a Schedule One. I like this article because they say things like cannabis in the United States became illegal because of racist policies. The 1937 Marijuana Tax Act made it cost prohibitive for medical doctors to prescribe cannabis to patients, something that was commonplace until politicians started cracking down on Mexican-American farm workers for their use of the plant. Former President Richard Nixon blaming blacks, Jews, and leftists further cracked down on cannabis by designated as a Schedule One drug. That designation remains through today. Cannabis is illegal federally scheduled as a, as a Schedule One controlled substance, but even state law, despite being legal to use in cannabis, maintains cannabis as a Schedule One drug alongside methamphetamine, heroin, and cocaine. The, new, the Nevada State Board of Pharmacy continues to list cannabis as a Schedule One drug, and that listing prompted the lawsuit this week by the ACLU, and Nevada is seeking to get cannabis removed. Uh, and the ACLU is seeking to get Nevada to remove cannabis from this list. For cannabis to be scheduled as a Schedule One substance, the Board of Pharmacy must find that it has no acceptable medical treatment and cannot be safely distributed to the public. The ACLU representative said, however, the Nevada Constitution explicitly allows for the use by a patient upon the advice of a physician of a plant of the gene, uh, the plant of cannabis for treatment of the elevate, alleviation of cancer, glaucoma acquired immunity deficiency syndrome, and other chronic or debilitating medical conditions. The HDLU alleges that pharmacy board's classification continues to waste taxpayer dollars by continuing criminal convictions against those using and possessing cannabis. So long and short of it is the ACLU is taking up this fight because there is, surprise, surprise, hypocrisy in this bullshit. It's like they are, we are depositing now what it will be billions of dollars, and yet we are treated like second-class citizen. This is a clear case to me of taxation without representation. It is fundamentally un-American. How loud do the people's voices need to be to get this to deschedule or bust? It's like, what is going on? I, I'm so frustrated. And even after 25 years, I'm, I, I look at this and I'm like, how is this possible? How are these smart, allegedly educated people that are elected into office still falling into this bullshit trap? Guy, can anyway, I ask a, a, a question of you? Yeah. Guy, I'm just wondering. So how, how does the ACLU prove their case? And maybe if any of the doctors are out there, if cannabis is not considered by, you know, actual the medical profession as, you know, a good treatment? 
do, do they need someone like the AMA or someone to come out and verify that it is a medical treatment for them? The U.S. government it? has a patent on CBD. What that are you talking matter. about? That doesn't matter. I'm saying, but for their case, that they have to prove that it's a valid medical treatment. I'm wondering, does somebody have to actually back that since we're not allowing that research? Wouldn't the ACLU just fail in this effort? Well, I don't think so, because I think in this particular case and to the earlier points about baby steps, it is legal in Nevada. Tons of citizens are using it in Nevada. So this notion that it is not capable of being distributed to the public is being proven every day as they collect tax dollars. So something is wrong there. That's just the first part. As it relates to the medical part, well, that's because we live in a fucking litigious society where insurance runs everything and insurance and pharma are hand in hand. And so nobody is going to put their their neck out on the line to go against policies that are set up by the people that insure them when something goes wrong. So systemic is not even a strong enough word for the bullshit that's going on here. And as a person of color, when I use that word systemic, I mean systemic. I mean, like everybody knows what's going on, but they're turning a blind eye because I, I'm not even sure anymore because there's money to be made. I don't know why they're turning a blind eye. I don't know why we're falling into this hypocrisy. That's what's frustrating to me. So, yes, because, I think Because, Guy, 75% of our elected officials have big pharma donors on both sides. Yeah, true, true. Exactly. Agreed. Or yeah, uh, insurance companies. And insurance companies don't want this because if you get caught and you have cannabis in your blood system, even if it's a month later... Good luck trying to prove that it wasn't your fault. Those things are still happening. Like, it is great that we are celebrating 420 and that we have some reprieve over where I started back in 1996. But however, we are not. Gee, I get the hypocrisy. I'm just wondering about the, the legal arguments. And I wonder, Brandon, can you shed any light on that? I can certainly shed some light, but I, I really do believe that the, you know, what Guy is talking about, the, the systemic resistance, is, you know, it doesn't matter what the legal arguments are. There's systemic resistance. Um, but, right, legal, but I'm saying legally, it actually happen. You need to le- get the legal arguments through. Legally, there's a hard time in this country because re- research has been really limited and largely prohibited until uh, recent advancements that were sort of led by Sue Sisley in allowing more research to be done. But there are many other countries where it is totally accepted that cannabis has clear medical value. And there's plenty of science and studies to back it up. The fact that anyone in the United States resists that cannabis has met some medical purpose is absolute utter bullshit. 100%. I wanted to uh, leave some time for a good friend of the show, uh, somebody that's been uh, leading the fight for since the beginning, a good friend of mine, Etienne Fontan. I just wanted to give you a minute or so to uh, talk to the audience about what the show means to you. Um, well, one, I want to congratulate you all on coming up. I guess this is about a year now on your 420. So congratulations to the entire uh, State of Cannabis crew. Uh, I want a special shout out to all the activist voices and hands that have lent uh, a hand to our movement over the decades. Respect to those who have passed away recently. Rick Frommer. Yesterday, we lost Elon Ray. Rest in peace. Much love to his family and friends. And especially to all those who are still incarcerated for cannabis in states with no cannabis laws. What y'all are doing is spreading the word in not only states, but countries that are looking for hope and looking for uh, any ways to do things because there has been no blueprint from it uh, except what we have literally done. So we still have a lot of work to do to change these laws. And again, special shout out to your entire crew for the, I know it's changed over the years and you have taken a lot of flack, but Much love for sticking out and rising above it all. Shout out to my Veterans Action Council crew, changing laws internationally and uh, in the country. And uh, much love from the oldest continuously operating dispensary in the U.S., Berkeley Patients Group, for 22-plus years of doing it daily. And uh, those that are listening, don't forget to lend a hand today to make tomorrow a better future. You know, getting educated here helps, but going out and spreading that word and information is key. And... 
what the state of cannabis has been doing is leading the way through proper information and mad respect to every single one of you for your hard work and dedication. People, these are all volunteers here. They're, nobody's getting paid for this. So mad respect for taking the time. Each one of you I consider great activists because you're self-educating yourself and then taking it out to the people. So sorry for being so so late and so long there, but much love, Susan, and to all of y'all. Happy 420, everybody. Thank you so much, ATN, and thank you, everybody. That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that come through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Rico and Jason for co-producing the show and to our pinup girl, Jaja Simone Brown. Thank you very much. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday. 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Bye. <laughs> so 420, y'all. Happy, Happy 420. Stay safe, everybody. Bye, banking. <laughs> Bye. She brings all the boys to the yard and they're like, it's better than yours. Damn right, it's better than yes, yours. Yes, Susan. Yeah, we got a lot to do today, so we're going to call it a day. Thank you so much, everyone. Rico, what do you say? Bye-bye.